room when the NSA once listed as the most dangerous hacker in America. Sure don't look like much. He travels the world and scans the web to keep you up to date on the latest threats to the internet and to your cybersecurity. He brings you the latest on the fight against cyber terrorism, keeping you safe with the best cybersecurity information on the radio. It's Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. Good morning. You've turned into Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek, broadcasting on AM820 News, covering Tampa Bay and the West Coast, as well as AM1060 News, covering the Space Coast and Orlando. To connect to us online, visit our website at CybersecurityTodayRadio.com, on Facebook and Twitter, on Facebook and Twitter at CyberSec Radio, and by email, Radio at gmail.com, J-O-H-N-B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K, radio at gmail.com. And if you'd like to list a podcast, and if you'd like to listen to the podcast version of the show or any extra content we may put out there, use whatever podcasting software you like and just look for Cybersecurity Today Radio. So a lot of great content uh, coming your way uh, with a digital partner, cyberscoop.com, and from Tom Kellerman of Strategic Cyber Ventures Group. So let's jump right into it. A lot of news uh, that we're covering today. Big news of the week was uh, HBO apparently is hacked. So several uh, amount of uh, a large amount of data was stolen. Uh, they estimate seven times more uh, than what was stolen Sony uh, with the Sony hack uh, about two years ago. So there was an email sent this weekend or this past weekend to all of their employees notifying the company had been compromised. There was another email warning staff not to open suspicious e- uh, emails. Uh, and then a hacker going by the name of Littlefinger66 uh, was boasting to the media that they pulled off the greatest leak of the cyberspace era. Uh, they posted a teaser by giving the script for an episode of an upcoming version of Game of Thrones, a lot of other stuff out there. So what they're saying about 1.5 terabytes of data were stolen, uh, roughly 1,500 gigabytes for reference, a DVD will cover about two or four uh, gigabytes worth of data. So, uh, you know, let's just say four, you're talking about over 300, almost 400 DVDs worth of information stolen from HBO. So a lot of data out there. We don't have a lot of information about who's behind it uh, or what that could mean. But certainly the fact that that much data was downloaded over the network uh, certainly should be a big warning sign, should have gotten noticed. But we don't really know for sure what has happened. Uh, the investigation is ongoing. The FBI is now involved. Uh, so um, time will tell things uh, how things play out. But being that there is a hacker out there, at least a public persona, who's sending out information, uh, it seems to indicate that they're going to, uh, you know, continue to try to make news, make hay of this and release more information as time goes on. So it'll be interesting how it plays out. There's a lot we don't know about it, except the uh, the investigation is ongoing uh, and uh, we'll see as the FBI and some of the cybersecurity firms that are investigating this, what they find out. So definitely a big breach out there. Uh, and, how, you know, this year there's already been uh, 
uh, a couple of breaches out there, one of a film studio stealing movies and other content. So it seems that uh, media and movie companies are taking a turn uh, of, of being typical targets for uh, cybersecurity. So stay tuned. We have more uh, more coming up. Uh, there will be more details coming out on that here in the coming days and weeks, and we'll cover them as uh, as they are interesting. So, moving along, another great article out there. Uh, the title is We're Thinking About Cybersecurity All Wrong, uh, an article that uh, discusses some commentary by President Obama's former cybersecurity advisor, uh, Michael Daniel. So, he is, uh, you know, has a Q&A in terms of, uh, you know, what he thinks is going on. You can find it at technologyreview.com. So, so the interview roughly covers, you know, the role of an organization called the Cyber Threat Alliance, uh, information sharing organization where uh, companies and entities will share data on attackers and adversaries of, you know, what you're what they're seeing on their network so other people can protect themselves. Statistically speaking, uh, you're probably most likely not to be the first person to ever be victimized online, even when dealing with a high-end adversary. So if everybody's working off the same data uh, and then building their defenses from there, uh, you can get a lot of efficiency in terms of everybody trying to sit there and research what the bad guy is doing. You start with a common set of data and then just start building defenses. Um, but it's very important realizing that criminals are constantly doing research and development, coming up with more tools. But certainly we've talked a lot about in the show. We see a lot in the news these days about how countries are engaging in sophisticated cyber attacks, not just Russia and China, but almost anybody can get into this. Right. If North Korea can do it and North Korea breached us, uh, it was attributed to breach Sony Pictures, which we just talked about uh, briefly. Um, if North Korea can get involved in it, anybody can. And certainly there's a lot of smaller players don't necessarily affect the United States or companies, but a lot of countries are getting into this in terms of, of hacking for espionage or influencing uh, the population out there. So um, there's a big role to be had in sharing uh, threat information. So ultimately, the people who can't buy expensive cybersecurity tools, namely consumers like you, uh, your family, uh, your friends can be protected, you know, without having to sit there and spend $300 on antivirus or $500 for an access point, you know, where people can start integrating this stuff uh, at a lower level to protect the general public. So certainly uh, a lot of things, uh, a lot of developments in there. I know when I first started in this industry, everybody was kind of on their own. You had to make your own sensors to see what the bad guys are doing. Now there's a lot more cooperation out there from from firms that normally will compete with each other in the marketplace, but will work off common data uh, and share information and playbooks about what the bad guys are doing. And I think that's certainly a big change uh, for the better in terms of what we're seeing in terms of how uh, cybersecurity companies uh, are working together to protect the general public. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanak. Moving on to our next story, right, uh, is an interesting little story out of uh, Columbus State University. Uh, they're, uh, they're a decent-sized university, uh, but was awarded a little less than $200,000 by the National Security Agency to uh, develop some uh, cybersecurity training and curriculum development tools. So uh, we talked, we have talked about the training shortage uh, of cybersecurity uh, professionals out there, how there's more work than any of us can do. I, I know that's true for my 
case. And how do we address that? How do we get uh, more training, more information, more skills out there uh, for the general public to help protect their organizations uh, and the general public? So uh, many people think of the NSA as an offensive-oriented group in terms of espionage, but uh, they do uh, a lot of defensive-type things. And certainly... Uh, sp- spending money uh, and giving grants to universities to help build tools and courses uh, is a large part of what they do. So uh, many universities, including the one I'm involved with, the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, are, are working to develop courses to, to help produce uh, good, strong workers and uh, people who can join the workforce to help protect people. But certainly, you know, access to information and tools outside of a university environment. Certainly, you know, degrees are not Uh, and having, you know, four years of education and this kind of stuff. But there's a lot of people out in the workforce already, so they certainly need workforce development and things of that sort. This grant talks a little bit about that. But I know uh, at least a couple of people listen to the show want to know, hey, I'm thinking about getting into cybersecurity. You know, what do I do in terms of uh, getting more information, um, you know, uh, getting training, so on and so forth, so that you can uh, join the workforce, get some of these high-paying jobs. Another great resource out there is OpenSecurityTraining.info. It's essentially just free courseware. Some of it has videos. Some are just PowerPoints and exercises. But in a, in a large uh, kind of body of courses covering forensics and reverse engineering and, and penetration testing, so on and so forth, uh, it, it's a good repository. But you can find a lot of stuff on, on YouTube uh, at small conferences like B-Sides, B-S-I-D-E-S, uh, in your local area to learn you know, from people in the field who are willing to teach each other. I, I don't have a frame of reference of how other industries have it, but I know in, in security and in cybersecurity, uh, we do uh, a lot of people spend time teaching others what they know and kind of uh, community building of knowledge to help deal with these uh, the cybersecurity skills shortage. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanak. Scan your computer, but don't scan the dial. Stay right here. John Bambanak will be right back. You're back with Bambanek on cybersecurity. And welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Joining us now is Sean Waterman from CyberScoop, cyberscoop.com, our digital partner, to come up uh, to discuss uh, some of the recent headlines in cybersecurity. Thank you for joining us today, Sean. Always a pleasure, John. So, you know, first up, there's been uh, a lot of conversation about uh, the NSA and Cyber Command uh, and splitting those operations. Uh, And certainly the Government Accountability Office had some findings uh, related to uh, making that work. So uh, break it down to us. What's the latest about uh, about Cybercom and uh, what did the GAO find? Well, as you know, John, since... uh since Cyber Command was stood up in 2010, uh, it's always been what they call dual-hatted uh, with the NSA, meaning the same four-star general is always director of the NSA and the uh, commanding general of U.S. Cyber Command. And um, there has there, there have been long-standing concerns that this. Uh, 
<clears throat> this, uh, you know, might be cramping the style, really, of the uh, military cyber forces in in cyber command. Uh, it might be uh, it might be encouraging an unhealthy reliance on their part on the infrastructure uh, developed by their colleagues at the NSA, uh, who are, after all, spies, and cyber command yeah. are warriors. So, you know, so there have been some concerns. And um, last year, in the annual Defence Authorization Bill, Congress mm-hmm. set forth a list of conditions that uh, that uh, the, the Pentagon would have to meet before this, uh, before any decision to end that dual hat leadership arrangement went forward. And principally, that was that uh, the uh, Secretary of Defence and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff would have to jointly certify that splitting the leadership would not impact the military effectiveness of cyber command. Mm -hmm. Um, But there were also about half a dozen other conditions. And, I mean, frankly, the GAO report uh, looks at those conditions and uh, not only have they not been met, but the military hasn't even sort of gotten around to figuring out how it might go about meeting them yet. (laughs) So, uh, (laughs) right. Um, So, you know, clearly this is still some any sort of separation there is still some way off well i think to, to, to make that kind of concrete with some other recent events right there there have been huge breaches of classified information right vault seven uh, that's being leaked by wikileaks the equation yep. group uh, with shadow brokers chelsea manning uh edward snowden harold martin right uh though to be fair only chelsea manning was military right there's been a huge number of breaches of of highly classified material and with the shadow brokers in in this case right the nsa exploits uh, that they've used against foreign adversaries so this is kind of a a very big thing right The, the, the findings that people aren't following basic recommendations and some of these same agencies are losing a lot of very damaging information to our foreign adversaries series. Well, I think that's right. And, um, and you know, I mean, that may have been happening in the past. It's just that they, the foreign adversaries weren't dumping this stuff on the Internet. Yeah. And I think that, uh, you know, that's the sort of key difference that we're now in this kind of open, you know, this sort of this, this silent struggle, which has been going on in the shadows, you know, under uh, completely beneath the radar. Uh, most people, even in the cybersecurity business, is now you know going on more or less in full view mm-hmm. um and that is uh i mean you know that's very alarming and i think i mean these uh these uh n s a exploits that the shadow brokers dumped uh i mean you know as you know john if you if you talk to people i mean these we're going to be feeling the repercussions of that for a decade or more i suspect. Well, we'll stop feeling the repercussions of that when we're feeling the repercussions of whatever the next screw up is anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, you know, I, I, I'm a little it's, cynical. Uh, it's a great business to be in, isn't it, John? I mean, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> Unlimited job security, right? So anybody looking, right. looking to make a career change, right? If you can handle the cynicism <laughs> and the fact that the same things keep happening over and over again for decades, it's really a well-paying industry. So if you just... <laughs> 
<laughs> if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Let's move on to the next story. Speaking of big money, uh, you had a, a story out there. Uh, insurers saying the next major uh, cybersecurity breach, uh, particularly against cloud services, which many of us use and many of us might not know that we rely upon, uh, could cost more than hurricanes. So, uh, for instance, Netflix is based on Amazon's cloud service. So if Amazon get hit, Netflix goes down and there's lots of uh, intellectual property there. So tell us a little bit about that and what that means in terms of what uh, the uh, insurers are saying about the risks to cloud services. Well, so, um, you know, w- w- the reason this interested me, John, this, uh, these uh, estimates, which is from Lloyd's of London, which is obviously, you know, the world's leading insurance market and a, and a Silicon Valley uh, risk management science uh, what interested me is, you know, it's it's uh, it's rare to see, uh, and of course these are just estimates, but it's rare to see actual numbers behind some of this to talk about, uh, you know, about these big um, about these big malware incidents, right? And um, you know, this uh, the line about it costing more than Hurricane Sandy obviously caught everyone's eye. Um, in fact, these are estimates, you know, and there's a range of them. Um, but the at the more extreme end, you know, you are talking about uh, over 120 billion dollars, and that would be. But you know, as you say, there's a kind of knock-on. There's a sort of run-on uh, impact from from this. Uh, you know, cloud providers are, uh, you know, provide compute capacity for other service providers, right? Like net. You know, Netflix uh, customers wouldn't be able to use uh, their accounts if Amazon went down. And, uh, you know, so there's this sort of run-on effect. And um, especially with the big, the major cloud providers, mm-hmm. you know, a, a significant chunk of the world's business computing is now done in those big clouds. Mm-hmm. And if for any reason they went down globally, and obviously... You know, there are extremely uh, skillful and highly motivated people trying, working every day to make sure that that doesn't happen on the security teams of these big cloud providers. But let's just say that, you know, the Amazon cloud went away, uh, even just for a day or two. You know, the, the, the consequences would be um, really incalculable, uh, except not incalculable, because these guys did put, I mean, that is the kind of $120 billion event that they're talking about. No, absolutely. And these things can go down just by human error. I want to say six months ago, there was a major Amazon outage, at least in one of their data centers. And I believe that was human error. But so many things right. rely on it. And, you know, a day without Netflix and so on and so forth. It's uh, how am I going to entertain my kids without kids movies from Netflix, for instance. So right. um, the, the loss wouldn't be measured in loss of life or whatever, but but definitely major, major economic impact. So we're going to take a short <laughs> break here. Uh, take a short break here. Uh, and after the break, We'll talk more with Sean. So stay tuned for more. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Stay tuned for more from Bambanek on Cybersecurity. Bam- 
Ambonix back with the latest on cybersecurity. And welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with John Bambanek. Still with uh, Sean Waterman uh, discussing more on kind of the impacts of what cloud service providers outages can do and and the billions of dollars of impact uh, that there could be. Uh, Thank you for sticking with us there, Sean. Uh, It's a pleasure, John. And um, as I was just uh, going to mention before the break, um, you know, the other piece of this is that... uh, many of these losses would not be insured, right? Because the cyber security insurance market is is, uh, extremely new. Um, There is a very little uniformity as between the different companies about what exactly is covered. You know, generally in, for example, if you get you know, home insurance or renters insurance. There's a sort of there's a there's a fairly uh, uh, well established set of uh, limitations and exclusions that are essentially similar from one policy provider to the next. But in cyber, you know that that those conventions have not arisen yet, and uh, as a result, you know. You've seen one cyber policy. You've seen one cyber policy. Right? So, so um, the, uh, the, uh, the this report from Lloyd's of London said, you know, that um, a lot of these losses uh, would be uninsured, and uh, nonetheless, we even even though that's the case still cripple the, uh, the, the this nascent cybersecurity insurance market because already uh, they're, they're proving quite costly policies um, for the yeah. insurance company and, and, and a big event like that could just uh, you know basically uh, render them uh, render them untenable as a, as, a, as a business that's the fear yeah and it's definitely the biggest problem is it's unpredictable really right you know it's not like you can to be cold and clinical about it you know approximately how many people are going to die from cancer a year we've got all sorts of data for health insurance we've got all sorts of data for auto insurance and risk factors this that and the other thing but for cybersecurity and breaches things change all the time if somebody last year would say hey there could be a crippling network worm like WannaCry I would have said please worms are last decade uh, and here we are we've had two with WannaCry and NotPetya this year so uh, definitely some some big impacts and, and economic impacts it could have because without uh, uh, cyber insurance, many companies would be more reticent about some of the innovations we see and rely on uh, that we might not even notice the back ends of. Right. So and that's it's all the stuff that goes on behind the scenes that you know ends up costing uh, so much. Yes, absolutely. So uh, one last story I wanted to get to. All right. You had another story up this week uh, on the anti-phishing working groups phishing report of 2016 uh, that malicious registrations, not necessarily hacking domains, is uh, a more common uh, common vector for criminal behavior online. Uh, Tell us exactly what the you know about the report. What does it mean for our everyday listeners? So, um, you know, the anti-fishing working group, as you know, one of the older um, sort of multi-stakeholder organizations working in the internet security space, uh, been around a few years, and every year they... uh, they analyze uh, their malware data uh, mm-hmm. of the phishing from, uh, from the prior year. So, uh, so this is looking at uh, you know millions of uh, phishing. Uh, <clears throat> I believe uh, they have uh, 
of more than a quarter of a million identified phishing domains and they kind of looked at you know which of them were hacked which of them were bought and sold on the uh, on the uh, grey market I guess there's a market in, in domain registration now um and uh, you know, it's uh, what 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 they find. What the report finds is that uh, there's a tr- there's a trend, which is that some more and more fishers are using are registering, you know, uh, openly, uh, legally registering uh, these domains rather than hacking a server and sort of squatting on it. Um, I mean, I say this, but my own inference from that was that it's mm-hmm. it provides them with a more resilient infrastructure basically because you know these things aren't policed uh, very well um, oh, and you know particularly some of these small uh, uh, you know one of the things that, that, that amused me is that you know a, a very high a relatively very high proportion of these domains come from three a country mm-hmm. you know CC country code top level domains the tiny uh, Pacific Island nations of Palau, mm. Tokelau, and Cocos, right? Between yes. them provide almost 10% of uh, all the fishing domains. And that's because, you know, those domains are basically widely available for sale through um, through some resellers who, who really don't care uh, who mm. they're selling to, apparently. No, absolutely. And it's it's very easy. You just go to a, you know, a domain registrar, or you, you put in the information, you give them your 10 bucks, 15 bucks, whatever it is, and you're done. And it's very difficult to police and domain registrars as a community make it very difficult uh, to deal with that problem because, well, they're getting paid. Uh, they don't get paid by us. They get paid by yeah, yes, by product. Are. So a lot of great information uh, to see more of some of the great reporting over at CyberScoop. Go on to CyberScoop.com. So thank you for joining us today, Sean, and I hope you have a great weekend. You've been listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bamanek, segueing into a couple of other interesting stories that uh, you may find interesting as related to cybersecurity. First one up, you know, 2016, we've talked a lot about election-related hacking and manipulation. Uh, There's a lot of concern about uh, voting machines and voting machine security. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about that here in a little bit, you know, but apparently there's a a, a discussion about uh, the Election Assistance Commission uh, and whether that should be funded or reduce funding uh, in terms of what they do. It's a very technical uh, federal agency that helps state and local officials ensure free, fair, and safe elections. So funded by uh, the federal government, but as you may know, elections are really a matter for the states and local uh, election jurisdictions and funded primarily at that level. So uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, things that they can do, but there's no real federal control over elections. It's all local things. So uh, in June, the House Republicans had a provision in their bill uh, that would abolish the Election Assistance Commission. Um, so, you know, a lot of controversy about that, particularly in the light of of 2016. So, uh, you know, a lot of partisan back and forth. Uh, but there's a lot of things that this Election Commission does. And kind of as a segue, last week at DEF CON in Las Vegas, uh, there was a lot of tinkering and attempting to break into 
to voting machines and take control. And you may have seen a lot of those articles. Uh, the Election Assistance Commission does have some roles in uh, in helping validate which are safe election machines and which are not, or voting machines rather. Uh, but it's typically up to the states. But you know, in DEFCON, right, there was a, a machine that they were able to take full remote control over using WinVote. Uh, so you saw a lot of headlines of the past week of how easy that was to hack. What you probably didn't see in many of those articles was that that voting machine hasn't been used in a while and no one uses it, in part because the company that makes it isn't in business anymore. So you can't buy it, and everybody who has used it has since decommissioned it. But certainly there are some uh, security uh, issues that go into elections, but there's a variety of other controls, not of all which involve cybersecurity. People have demonstrated attacks on uh, voting machines uh, in various sorts. Uh, almost all of them require some uh, measure of physical access, right? These devices aren't in the on the Internet. Uh, they're in polling stations off, uh, offline. I mean, they're powered up and working, but not connected to the network. So, yeah, if I can go in there, pull the back off a machine, start messing with the board, whatever, I'm sure I can manipulate a whole bunch of stuff. But one would think that in a polling place on election day, the election judges, the poll watchers or voters themselves would notice, hey, why is that guy taking apart a voting machine and tinkering with the uh, tinkering with the inside of it? Right. So, uh, you know, these these attacks make interesting headlines. But certainly keep in mind, there's a lot of protections involved. So we're going to take a short break right here. Uh, Stay tuned for more great content on cybersecurity news. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Stay tuned for more from Bambanek on cybersecurity. You're listening to John Bambanek, the most trusted name in cybersecurity. Joining us now, uh, Tom Kellerman, who is the CEO of SCV Group, uh, who's a cybersecurity investment house. Um, There's lots of uh, companies and new startups doing new technology and tools to protect consumers and businesses, uh, the Internet of Things and the like, and thought it would be good to bring on uh, somebody who has a good uh, industry overview about what the next big thing is and uh, what is being developed to help uh, combat the problem of cybercrime and worms like WannaCry, so on and so forth. So thank you for joining us, Tom. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. No, great to have you. So let's kind of jump right into it. Kind of at a high level, you know, what does SCV Group do? Kind of where do you fit in in terms of uh, the whole cybersecurity ecosystem? So Strategic Cyber Venture is essentially a venture fund that is specific to a technological thesis, uh, an architectural thesis for the future of cybersecurity named intrusion suppression. Uh, And what that is defined as is essentially can you detect, deceive, divert, contain, and hunt an adversary unbeknownst to the adversary in real time. And given the 40 years experience as cybersecurity uh, operators slash white hats of myself and Hank Thomas, um, we realized rather quickly over that time, when, especially when I was at companies like Trend Micro at CSO, mm-hmm. that we could stop 98% of the problem, but we couldn't stop that 2%. The 2% that was being leveraged by 
the elite cybercrime syndicate, the nation state at all. And one of the greatest challenges was that since somewhere within the supply chain of a victim corporation, uh, there was a backdoor, a rat, or some sort of presence that was freely moving and, and had the capacity to move laterally and then thus recolonize a, a, a target, a victim mm-hmm. at all. Uh, this was compounded with the macro reality that hackers had gone from burglary to home invasion and had become much more punitive once inside of networks, even so much as to leverage destructive attacks, delete and destroy attacks as a result of uh, essentially counter incident response. Mm-hmm. And so thus, uh, a friend of ours in New York who runs Hudson Bay Capital decided to invest $100 million into our thesis. And we went out and uh, after having reviewed now 113 different companies, uh, we invested in four, a TrapX, E8 Security, ID DataWeb, and Polarity. And all four of these companies are complementary and they actually go to market together. But what they attempt to do in, as a group is to provide a destination for a proactive CISO whose number one concern is uh, thwarting and disrupting lateral movement, uh, forcing the adversary to become resource constrained, uh, creating an incident response mechanism to credential theft, and then lastly, getting true telemetry and attribution on who's hunting mm-hmm. them to begin with. No, I think that sounds uh, like very interesting. You know, aligns with some professional interests I have, but the interview is not about me. It's about you uh, and, and what you're doing. So, you know, this past week, there's Black Hat DEF CON. You know, a lot of companies out there talking about the, ne- the next big thing. Um, you know, you've touched on it a little bit. I mean, what do, you, what do you think the next big thing is in cybersecurity? What will have um, the most impact to consumers and businesses in terms of protecting themselves and actually uh, getting ahead of, uh, of criminal behavior? Well, for a non-mature cybersecurity organization that has a finite budget and doesn't have a security operations center but wants to quickly ramp up security, I think uh, the use of deception grids uh, is incredibly useful, especially if deployed correctly throughout the supply chain. Uh, For a mature Mm -hmm. uh, Fortune 100 entity that has a security operations center that is looking to truly... uh, amend uh, and fix uh, the conundrum they're facing with with being hunted and hunted again by certain adversarial groups, I think their number one premise is the fact that they're dealing with too much data coming off too many sensors and they need a single pane of glass that can allow them to, in real time, create telemetry and thus attribution on an adversary in order to uh, stop the next stage of the attack. And that I would call is memory augmentation, a company uh, that came out of uh, Mm-hmm. the community in Langley, uh, developed a capability to conduct what's called a reverse search, or essentially uh, endowing you with the, the memories and, and the capabilities and the strategies of every other analyst in your space when looking at a select problem. And, and that type of uh, visual overlay um, is produced by a company called Polarity. And Polarity is a very unique company and capability, and it's used to empower the, the incident responders, the, the threat intelligence operators, and the hunt teams of organizations and make them uh, much more effective, if not lethal, in their capacity to respond and predict uh, the next stages of attack by an adversary that's truly playing chess with us in today's world. Yeah, no, I said that, that, that that's all very, very interesting. And certainly, you know, some of the work I do with 
law enforcement trying to get to, to attribution and, and building kind of behavioral profiles that let you say, hey, this is how somebody's behaved over the last 12 months or 24 months. Um, yeah, I, would, I guess what you call a reverse search, right? Saying, okay, I caught him this time. What else has he done in the past? Uh, is immensely useful in, in helping prosecutions, right? Which is not necessarily the business many many companies are in, uh, but certainly allows you to, to do some very interesting defensive things. Yeah, especially if you're a Fortune 500 company, when you have many different uh, mechanisms uh of, of response at your disposal from your relationships with governments to the outside general counsel uh, through the use and the application of, of hybrid defense, uh, which overlays both cybersecurity and physical security on your assets. One of the greatest uh, trends I see uh, you know, in security, especially among CISOs, is finally we've reached a point where the person who ran uh, the identities of an organization, the person who was challenged with knowing who their customers were and knowing who their employees were, um, that person and their responsibilities is becoming a function of the cybersecurity team now. And, and that's a very important step that's occurring because of the nature in which one of the first things adversaries do is when they target an infrastructure, as you well know, uh, aside from setting up a back door and a secondary command and control, they compromise the credentials and escalate privileges on trusted insiders. Um, having the capacity to know who your uh, employees are again, knowing who your customers are in real time, re-verifying someone and their machine in real time before you provide that new private key to them, mm -hmm. before you provide that new token to them, uh, is quintessential in eradicating the infestation and the disease that exists in many of our networks today. Mm -hmm. And so this type of adaptive authentication post-breach um, that can be employed through technologies that rely on adaptive authentication um, is incredibly useful as I feel that we've missed the boat in many regards and aligning our incident response um, with the offensive tactics that are being utilized today. I don't think we've been cleaning up sufficiently, which is why we're dealing with so many more secondary infections within infrastructures. Uh, even though great forensics and incident response was done, um, many times they forget about the secondary command and control on a sleep cycle. Many times after they re-image a box, mm -hmm. clean a machine, conduct a forensics analysis, they then just reissued uh, new tokens and new private keys to all the users unbeknownst to them, assuming that each user and, and the session of each user is a righteous session without re-verifying the integrity of the person behind it. Absolutely. And I said one of the kind of core problems we've had a hard time solving in 20 years is verifying the person behind the keyboard is who they say they are. You know, a compromise could be a home computer because you log into a fantasy football site, your password gets stolen, your email gets stolen. That's enough in many organizations because people reuse passwords to get into an organization. And if you don't change the passwords or re-verify things or have any, something else, a secondary check, right? And somebody can just walk back in and then start uh, traversing an organization anymore so yeah i think what you're saying there in that last part was very key is 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 dealing with the the lack of authentication uh that we we assume is there but is really not all that terribly effective in most cases so coming to the end of our show here so wanted to say again thank you tom for joining us you've been listening to the tom kellerman ceo of strategic cyber ventures uh thank you for joining us tom thank you so much have a good day all right so a really great show, great interviews that we had today with Sean Waterman of CyberScoop, Tom Kellerman of Strategic Cyber Ventures. So a lot of information. I hope you got some value out of it. Uh, again, to 
connect with us online, you can go to our website, cybersecuritytodayradio.com, on Twitter and Facebook, at CybersecRadio, my personal Twitter account, at Bambanek, B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K, or email johnbambanekradio at gmail.com, J-O-H-N-B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K, radio at gmail.com. We do take questions, things you want to know about cybersecurity, uh, which which we may cover on the air as part of our social media feature. So certainly reach out, tell us what you like, don't you don't like, uh, and uh, you know we'll see if we can cover it on the air. So closing up again, thanks to our digital partner, Cyberscoop.com, some great cybersecurity news reporting that they have, and AM820 News covering Tampa Bay and the West Coast, as well as AM1060 News covering the Space Coast and Orlando, uh, where we're broadcasting out of. So until ne- next week, you've been listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. John Bambanek. On the radio and on the lookout for the latest cyber threats.